I was thinking about those words that we were just singing, and um, no other name other than Jesus. And uh, that's a tough statement for some in our culture. And the reason is that we live in uh, what we, most of us know, is a postmodern age. Um, I've been reading this past week uh, from a guy named Lee Strobel. Many of you may know that name. Lee Strobel was a, an investigative researcher, I believe, uh, in Chicago. He was an atheist for many, many years and then had a, an amazing transition, transfer of his old life to a new one and became a follower of Christ. Uh, he writes all of his investigative research, his style of writing just kind of naturally flowed right into his experience as a believer. Is It's not easy reading, but he explains not only what a, a postmodern is, but what a modern is. Now, this may be boring, but I promise it'll be real short. Um, see, the modernist movement started back in the 16th century, and it was it was an aim toward a quest for certainty. And uh, the more certain things were, the better they were. But in a postmodern culture, it's the exact opposite. We're done with being told there's only one way to get to, to this location. I know you're saying, uh, you know, you, you go straight, but I feel like I want to take a right. So when we say that there is no other name, it takes a postmodern culture and it makes it quake. What do you mean there's no other name? What do you mean that Christ would say, I'm the only way to the Father? And that's just so counterculture to what we are experiencing now in the 21st century, particularly in America. I say this because we're going to look retrospectively today. We're told in the scriptures that at the end of time that every single knee will bow not just for those who believe, not followers of Christ exclusively, but every single knee of humanity and every age, every creed, every race, every color, every religion, doesn't matter across the board, that every single knee, and it will be a very modernist mo uh, moment. <laughs> when we get to that point, there will be a vast and profound realization, stark for some, in that moment, the other stark bit of news that has to be wed with that truth is that for many it will be too late. Now, I'm, if you know my personality, I'm not into the boo game of scaring people into eternity. But at the same time, I believe that I would be remiss if I didn't speak truth as I find it in the Scriptures. And so in that moment... There will be no choice. Every knee will bow and confess what we have just confessed, that Christ alone is the Savior of this world. My message in this moment is this. Make the choice when you can make the choice. Make the decision before it's too late to make the decision. All the wisdom in the world in that moment means nothing. Wisdom in this capsule that we call life on earth means everything. And today we will look and see how important this little capsule is. This, the, the, the very short 80, 90 years that you might live, 50, 40, who knows. Very critical in the whole scheme of things. We're talking about change. We have been for some time. There are 11 stations on this subway track because I believe that people just don't change just like that for the most part. It takes preparation for those things to start kind of stirring in us. And, and then it takes a, some irritation for us to, to kind of get um, uh, discontent about certain things. Boy, I don't like the way I look. I, I don't like the way I, I need to work out. I, I You know, I, I can't I lift a 20-pound uh, weight. I need to go to the gym or whatever that thing is. You begin to be disturbed by it. So there are tracks all along this way. We need to be starved for it. We need to mo be motivated. We've talked about all those things. And the reason that we've stretched this out as long as we have is that being in the ministry now for over three decades, I recognize 
by by observing human behavior, that's part of my job, that I recognize that, that change for human beings is one of, if not the most difficult things that we do. Now, there are obvious things we can say, boy, you know, I, I used to be a smoker. I started smoking in the fourth grade. My mom's right here. I was ripping cigarettes off. Hey, just to confess to you, there's something new you learned about me. <laughs> smoke them on the way to school, you know, be cool and all that and smoke for years and qu- finally quit in college. But man, is that tough to quit. That's tough to change. Some things get a hold of us and you just can't say anything. I just quit smoking. It's just tough. But those are obvious things that we know. But there are subtle things, even as followers of Christ. There are subtle things that, uh, subtle things of the attitude or, or maybe there's a, there's a, too many ounces of a, a lack of ambition or apathy or, or perhaps when we're telling a story, we kind of always edge ourselves slightly in the, in the spotlight. You know, we kind of make ourselves look good. You know what I'm saying? There are times where we, we're telling a story and we just kick a little dirt on somebody mildly. We do it so well as Christians. And God says, boy, those are some things I'd like to change. But because we've done them so long and we've become masters at them, God, God said, boy, this is going to be tough. It's going to be tough to change. I think it takes a progression for us to change. And the other thing that's challenging is that I don't know about you, but just about the time I'm, I've changed something, I'm like, man, I think I, I think I'm really getting this thing. Then, as I've said before, God rings the doorbell and wants to change something else. So right where I'm about station elimination, and I'm like, man, I think I'm finally going to drop this from my life. God's like, ding dong. Hey, I want to prepare you for something else I'd like to change your life. Ah, man, I'm just getting ready to change this. And now you're over here, and God is, he's quantum. You know what quantum? Linear is like A goes to B goes to C goes to D, and quantum is like A to Q to R to S. And God works that way sometimes in our lives. With all of that said about change and how difficult it is, I'm going to propose something to you that may be more difficult than change. More difficult, more tougher than, uh, did I just say more tougher? <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, you get up here and try. <laughs> more tough <laughs> than transformation. <laughs> And it's this, that once we're changed, to maintain that change. Man, how many times have I lost weight? And there's something, there's a vortex of that kind of magnetizes you toward a goal. Like, man, you're, you, you'll do anything. You're eating celery. You're eating carrot sticks. You're doing everything to get to that goal of 180 or 160 or whatever your goal is. And, man, you're like, and then you finally get there and then something happens. You celebrate with a pepperoni pizza, and then it's all over again. <laughs> it takes what we're going to talk about today once we reach the apex of transformation. It takes a level of determination to maintain. You see, listen, a baseball game has nine innings. You see, if God were looking down as the owner of the team, he would say to us, hey, You played an amazing top of the third inning, but you blew it the rest of the game. It doesn't matter. You see, it's the whole game that matters for us. You just can't come swinging hard in one inning and then drop out the rest of the game. I've seen so many people in my life that uh, through through this experience as being in the ministry is like um, a lot of people have never changed, quite frankly. But then there are those that do, and you celebrate and think, wow, man, that is awesome. I, I just really celebrate that. But then you have the heartache and the embarrassment to see that a year later that all that change is gone. Does it mean nothing? Well, of course not. But it's not what Christ is looking for. He's not looking for sprinters. You might think I'm going to say he's looking for marathon runners. No, he's looking for marathon sprinters. Ones that don't just pace. Well, I got the rest of my life, so I'm going to take a little easy here. No, full out passion as we'll see. 
It's easy to change, you know, especially at the first of the year, by the way. We change a lot the first week. In fact, I saw this cartoon I thought I'd show, uh, show you this morning. Uh, it, Angus and Phil says, what exactly is a New Year's resolution? It's a to-do list for the first week of January. <laughs> so when we see these things, it reminds me of the Apostle Paul as he wrote these words from a prison in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 13. He says these words, here's the secret to this life. You got to be about this, straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, as we're going to see, the Apostle Paul was an observer of the Greek running races, the foot races. And when he says straining forward, that's at the moment where that ribbon is stretched across the finish line, ha! where they give it. That final ha at the end. Haven't you ever wondered why athletes don't do that the whole game? I'm actually bewildered by the two-minute drill at the end of a football game. Now, I'm not a football player, but I'm like, that seems to work pretty well. Why didn't you start the game with a two-minute drill? You know what I'm saying? Doesn't it aggravate you? Can you tell I'm a little aggravated? I'm a sports-frustrated person. I'm like, you know, your team is losing. Then at the last two minutes, they're going to kick it in. Like, why don't you kick it in the first inning? I'm at quarter. Or whatever it is. <laughs> I mean, a little bit of, ha, ah, like that, the whole game. Paul says, man, live your life as if you're crossing the finish line every minute of your life. He said in verse 14, I press on toward the goal, the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Here it is, the key of the entire morning. Watch, he says this, only let us hold fast to what we have attained. In other words, let us be determined to hold on, to maintain what we've already attained, to keep the change in our life. Now, you know as well as I do, that's tough. We need to be motivated. What would motivate us? So today, along with nine or ten other people, my son is getting baptized. Yeah, it's cool. He turns nine this week. It's one of those moments where you're like, should I clap? No, I guess I want to. He turns nine this week. And yesterday I intentionally carved out some time where he and I would spend together, you know, dad and son. And uh, we uh, just went out and uh, spent the time. And I said to him, hey, I know that uh, you're not going to fully understand what you're about to do. I get that. But here's here's the deal. I want you to I want you to know that you're on a you're on this journey. And it's never going to be perfect. And it's never going to be comfortable. But I tell you God is with you in this race. He looked at me and he said, "Hey dad, what are you learning tomorrow in church?" And I said, we're going to be talking about runners. He's an artist, which is cool some of the time. <laughs> when he draws on the walls, uncool. <laughs> when he goes to put his socks in the, in the right drawer, uncool. Very right brain. Hey, I took my socks. I put them under the sofa. See, that's artistic. <laughs> so sometimes it's artistic school. But so anyway, he, he came to me later and he brought me this picture. And he said, hey, I drew a picture of God's shoes. Some God's shoes. He's observing. He's got the 360 logo as the brand <laughs> and the right colors. We didn't even discuss it. I said, what are those sixes? Oh, there's not sixes. Dad, they're G's. These are God shoes. <laughs> I said, boy, you put those shoes on, son. You're going to run a race. That's what this is about. This is a starting line for you. You're committing it made me think of the Apostle Paul who said, I ran the race. I strained ahead. I pressed forward. I did a marathon sprint. So I, I thought, boy, what would these, what would the shoes of Paul look like? I actually, I took a trip to, to Israel and I was doing some excavation. I brought these, these were known to be the shoes of Paul. I'm selling them today for $39.99. I got, no, I'm just kidding. I don't know if they had, uh, how do you pronounce that again? Saucony. Is that right? I don't know if they had Saucony back then or whatever, but 
these shoes are, they're worn out. And you know that saying, boy, if these walls could talk, I just wonder, I just wonder, think about it. Let your imagination flow. And you're sitting in the jail cell with Paul as he's writing his final letter to a young man named Timothy. And he's saying to him, as we sang, hey, I'm about done with this race. I'm about over. And if you looked at the shoes of Paul, they had blood stains on them from where he's been beat. They're soaking wet. They're molded because he's been shipwrecked. They're torn. Some of the treads are gone. They're flat as a pancake. And if these shoes could talk in that moment, what would they teach you? See, my, said, my son said, what do they learn? I said, actually, I'm not sure. I know what I'm teaching. What we learn is a different story, is it not? What would these shoes of Paul, what would the shoes of Paul say when he wrote these words, his final words to Timothy in the second letter in chapter 4, verse 6? He says, young Timothy, I'm in my final round. I'm on the last stretch, son. I'm being poured out like a drink offering, he says, because the drink offering in that day was the last thing to be poured on. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, Timothy, but also to those who have longed for his appearing. Oh, if the shoes of Paul could talk of one who has finished the race, what would they say? How is it, Paul, that you ran so well? How is it, Paul, that you didn't give up in the first quarter like so many others did that you've mentioned in your letters? How is it, Paul, that you weren't on fire in the third inning, but we wondered where you were in the seventh? How is that? I think the first thing he'd say to us is this. Don't look at the masses. Look at models. You see all the runners around you? You got to be careful. They'll slow you down. Watch. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24, he says, do you not know? I love when people start that way. Like, come on, right? Don't you know this already? In other words, you've been to the games. You've seen how they've worked. You see the runners. Don't you know that all runners run? Oh, I'm in the game. He's basically saying, big deal. We get so excited. I'm in the game. I'm in the game. I'm in the race. Paul's like, okay, that's cool. All the runners run. But what I would tell you, Timothy, or the Corinthians, but only one gets the prize. You see, in the in those days, the Greek games, they were called the Isium games. I-S-T-H-M-I-A-N, Isium games. They were much like the Olympics. They had different events. They had boxing. They had uh, uh, running and probably javelin uh throwing and whatever. That's my limit right there. I'm going to stop. But they had different events. Unlike the Olympics, which you have a, a gold and a silver and a bronze, not so in the Isium Games. There was one winner. There was no prize, no trophy for second place, runner up. There was only one person that stepped on that platform and all the rest didn't win now in heaven thank god that's not a, a transferable reality like one of us is gonna get it and it's gonna be me by the way just let you know <laughs> of course not but what he is saying is you run the race as if you're the only winner that there's only one winner you run it with that intensity because, see, if we look at the postmodern culture, it says, ah, you don't have to do it that way. 
If we look at our brothers and sisters as Christians, quite frankly, in America, it could slow you down. Well, nobody else is given. Nobody else is reading their Bible. Nobody else is blah, 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 fill in the blank. You see, Paul says, if you look at that, it will drag you right down. You know, because the masses, now I'm not talking about, boy, you hang out with bad people, you get bad behavior. That's a given. I'm talking about the subtlety of culture, the subtlety of like everybody else is doing it. Therefore, it just, you just like the old frog in the kettle that's boiled over time. You just go kind of go right with it. Isn't it crazy how fads happen and, and you, and you do things that you don't even think about you're doing. And you know, like, remember there's a, uh, bean, beanie babies. Remember that? You're buying the thing. You, well, beanie babies are like little things full of little beans, like little animals, like, you know, uh, stuffed animals, basically. You remember the craze on the b- beanie babies? You're up there buying a kangaroo. You don't even want it, but everybody else is buying it. You're like, well, I'll just buy it. You know, I mean, they're fads like that. So now everybody's got a smartphone, right? An iPhone. So now they're photo fads. Don't know if you've seen some of them. And, and, and so you, once a person starts taking like a photo and they do it in a crazy way, then it becomes a fad and everybody's doing it. You can feel some pictures coming on, can't you? So it started with this one. It's called planking. So planking, this was obviously in German where they, Germany where they have, you know, 43 letter words. Um, you, you find a place and you lay face down straight and then, and then you take a shot and you send it out. It's like hashtags if you're into that. You know, then you kind of start a trend, start a fad, and then everybody starts taking pictures of themselves planking. You know, they're planking and they, you know, here we are in the cereal aisle in Publix. Ah, Bob's planking. And we're, you know, and it becomes like, you know, a fad. And then here's another one for you. Check this out. Leisure diving. It's become a fad now, you know, a photo fad, I should say. So they take pictures, you know, and they're all jumping at the same time. Some of you are like, how do they do that? It's like a string. Anyway, you'll get it. Um, and here, how about this one? This one's crazy. Milking. <laughs> this is one of those things that you ask yourself why you did it after you did it, right? In other words, the fad is you stand in front of somebody, they take your picture while you pour milk over your head. It's, uh, it's popular, um, especially in some, I guess, well, I don't know where that is. Uh, okay, how about this one? Here's one, cat breeding. Not cat breeding, but cat breeding. I have nothing to say about that. Oh, it gets better. How about this? Check this out. Here's one for you. Post-it war. In other words, you make artwork out of post-it notes. You take a picture and you send it out and everybody's doing that. Uh, yeah, moving on. Here's one for you. Uh, money facing. Some of you will be looking like George Washington a little later. We'll be trying that outside. And I think this is the last one, perhaps. Uh, yes, Vadering. Uh, yeah, you have to look at that long and hard if you know Star Wars. And some of you are like, I don't get it. Well, we have printouts. You can take it home and figure it out when you get. Uh, so, look, we do the craziest of things. We get caught up in this movement or whether it's Beanie Babies or, or, or whatever it is, without even knowing it. In the church, this is how we operate. This is how we, I know how to operate as a Christian because I'm watching the other runners. Paul said, I would have never made it. I would have never crossed the line as Christ had intended for me to cross the line had I looked at all the other runners. Oh, there's a lot of runners in the game. It's a big deal. Look at models. Keep your eyes on those who are running full throttle. That's the secret of crossing over. You see, in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer lists not the masses, but the models. You see, Noah was a guy that all the rest of the runners were blowing it. But he kept his eyes. He put blinders on. He kept his eyes on Christ and said, man, I'm going to run differently than the masses. See, he's listed in the book. You see, guys like David had a heart that followed after God, different from those around him. And so did Jeremiah, and so did Isaiah, and so did Moses, and so did Joshua, and so did Caleb. You remember Joshua, Caleb, they came back. They all, These ten spies, I can't look at them because they're going to say, ah, we're freaked out. We're not going to. No, look at the models. 
For that reason, Hebrews chapter 1, as you might know, begins with this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of models, of witnesses, men and women who ran the race, since we're surrounded by these guys, let us throw off everything that hinders And the sin of copycatting the masses that so easily entangles us. And let us run with determination and perseverance the race marked out for us. Oh, if these shoes would talk, Paul would say, here's how you run. Pick somebody that's going full throttle. Put blinders to the masses and run right after them. What if they trip and fall? Oh, they might. But if they're running with a heart for Christ, they'll get up and maybe you can help them. They're not perfect. I'll never forget my freshman year in college was a blur. I had a lot of fun. I came to Christ in Boston, as many of you know, when I was studying to be a concert pianist. I uh, was kind of infatuated with with what I did. Eight hours a day, 364 days a year, I took Christmas off. But see, uh, I was in Virginia when I started. And I was good at what I do. I don't care if you what you do for eight hours a day. You do basket weaving, you'll be weaving some pretty good baskets. I won first place in every competition I ever entered. Except when I moved to Boston. Small fish in a big tank. Reality set in. Oh, you thought you were a hot sausage back then? That was a small town. I got there and I saw such an amazing level of some that would just full throttle. Blew my mind. Blew my mind so much, by the way. I got on I, I Brought a plane ticket, flew home after two weeks of school. I told my parents I quit. It was that overwhelming. Like, wow, welcome to the world, little man. My dad wept. Didn't see him weep very often. He said, I beg you to get back in that race and learn from others that are running who are better than you. I took his advice. I got back and eight hours went to 12 hours because I had models to look at. We all know no new information that the church in America is running at a low RPM. Paul would say, don't look at them. If you want to run with full force, you pick somebody. I got a man that's about a decade older than me that I look at who's strong is in his 60s, who loves Christ in his 60s, who runs hard after Christ in the 60s. I'm following you, man. I'm following you with blinders on. Who is it? Paul says, don't look at the masses. Look at the models. Then you'll run the race with great, great passion. The second thing I believe Paul would say, or at least his tennis shoes, his running shoes, is this. You got to know the course in order to stay the course. You got to know the course in order to stay the course. Fortunately, running a track is easy. Just keep taking a left. Some of you are like, what? Yeah, just go to the next curve, hang a left. Go to the next curve, hang a left. Just keep hanging a left. But some of us, because we are altered by the, the postmodern movement and not even know it, we're like, I don't like left. The kind of left aggravates me. I don't like to, this seems, I don't like the the track. I'm going to hang a right. In fact, I'm hungry. I'm going to the snack bar. And what we learn from Paul's like, if you're going to stay the course with determination, you've got to know the course. Watch. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 again, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? And he says this, run in such a way. To get the prize. That's to get the prize. In other words, he's saying, you've got to run in a certain way 
in order to get the prize, which means is, which means that there is not a way to run. There's a way to run. There's not a way to run. What he's saying here is that you've got to keep within the boundaries because every sports event has boundaries, a chalk mark, a boxing ring, whatever that may be. You can't say as a runner, man, I ran and, and, and the judge at the end is like, you know what? You didn't keep on the track. And you, you went to the snack bar, and you didn't cross the finish line, but man, did you run fast. Way to go. You get a prize. Doesn't work that way. You see, Paul goes on to tell Timothy in, chap, in chapter 2 of Second Timothy. He says this, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown, watch, unless he competes according to the rules. Makes sense, right? You're a football player. You can't step out and back in. Just doesn't work that way. You don't. If if you they score the touchdown, they play it back, do an instant replay, and your foot went out. Mm, pull it back, right? Didn't count. Paul's saying you guys know already that in an athletic event you must play according to the rules. Now watch. Here's the way it worked. In the Isium Greek Games, at the end, when the person who won was walking to the judges. They walked up and they stood on this platform. In fact, here's a quote from a history book. The victor in the Isium Games of a given event who participated according to the rules was led by the judge to the platform called the Bema. That's what it was called. So if I ran the race, I'd step up on this platform called the Bema and they wanted to make sure that I didn't cheat, that I stayed in my lane, that I didn't bump anybody, that I didn't kick sand at anybody. You see, here's, here's why I bring this up, and here's why I would say Paul would say, let me tell you at the end of my life, if you're going to get the prize, you've got to play according to the rules. So in a postmodern American church environment, what happens is, I want to do it my way. So I want to... Uh, meet, for example, on Thursday night at my house, and we're just going to sing worship songs. And that's all I'm going to do the rest of my life. And you say, well, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But it's not everything Christ called me to. I'm just going to start the church in my backyard. I'm going to do those things. I'm only going to do... And Christ would say, no. Paul would say, no. I gave you a commission. Paul said, look, I made... the reason I'm writing to Timothy is because I got the rules of the game to make disciples. And Timothy is my disciple. I just didn't make it up as I went along. So when we stand before Christ, we're going to stand on the Bema platform. And he won't say, boy, I'm telling you what, you sang that song so well. I'm telling you, you ran the race so well. That was beautiful. Love the way you did that. He is going to ask us, how did we run according to what he told us to do? Watch. At the end of time, we get it. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Paul says these words, For we must all appear before the judgment seat. The word in Greek, are you ready? Bema. All of us, our set of shoes will stand on the Bema platform of Christ. That each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, let me be perfectly clear. This has nothing to do with our sins in this moment. People freak out when, I, when we talk about the Bema platform or the Bema seat of Christ. There are two judgments at the end of time. One is for those who don't believe in Christ. We call it the great white throne judgment. It's found in the book of Revelation. At that moment, we will find out, the, the people will find out who have not accepted Christ, whose names are not in the book of life, as we're told in the book of Revelation. And they will be judged according to their sins, and they will, the judgment is harsh. It's stark. It is an eternity away from God. There are those who say, you can come back to life a second time. It's not true. 
There are Christian writers, a, for, a, a well-known Christian writer that wrote a couple years ago, you got another chance after you die. It's not true. The reality is in that moment, if we were, are without Christ, who graciously all of our life is trying to reach out and say, quit depending on yourself. I died for you. I love you. I rose from the dead to prove that, to embrace that and say, oh God, I give up. This is what these are doing when they're baptized today. They're saying, I give up my effort in trying to, to win heaven. And I take Christ on. And with that, and because I've done that, I'm going to show the world to be, and be baptized. We're not talking about that. It's another story for another day. Listen, the Bema seat of Christ is only for followers of Jesus. That means every single one of us will stand, will step up to the platform. He says here something that may seem scary. He says, we're going to be recompensed. That's a scary word for deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And you think, wow, you mean you're going to bring up the time I looked at something on the computer? That's not, no. You see, when, when Steve steps up on the platform, let's see. Here come the sins of Steve. Wow, it's blank. It's blank. It has been washed completely clean because of the blood of Christ. Oh, if you're not thankful, something's wrong with your thankometer. But Christ will take the rules of the game for us as Christians. Did you love me passionately? Did you love others sacrificially? Did you tell the world about Christ? Did you make Timothy's? Did you make Joshua's? Did you make Elijah's? Did you run the race in such a way that others could follow you? That's the rules of the game. It's not what I wanted to create in that moment. And according to that, we will find out if we ran the race according to Christ. Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26 he says, therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. It's not all over the place. I do not fight like a man. Jackie Chan. <laughs> no. Boxing is a sport. Very strategic. See, if I got in a boxing match, I'd look like a schoolyard kid. Like, just, you know, one of those. Paul said, no, you can't run the race. You can't do the thing like that. I can't run the race just like, oh, I think I'll do this. Oh, I love worship. Oh, I think I'll do that. Oh, I think I'll start this, you know. That felt pretty good, actually. No, he says, oh, keep. In the, if you're going to stay the course, you got to know the course. Finally, if we're in the prison with Paul, and we look at those shoes and we say, boy, if those shoes could talk, what would they say? He said, well, don't look at the masses. Find a model. You got to know the course. But then he would say, look, there comes a time where only you can do your part. Only you can do it. Only you can do it. No one else can do it. No other human can do it for you. And I don't know if you notice, God's not into entitlement. I'll do it for you. God's more like a, a motion detector light. You start moving, I turn on. You got to put it into action. You know, it's kind of like working out. There are some days I absolutely hate working out. For those of you that work out, you know what I'm saying. There are other days that I... I love working out. Then I'd wake up from the dream and I realized it was a dream. But but nobody else can do that for you. Have you heard of that, guy, that comedian, Jim Gaffigan? You ever heard of that guy? Uh, he he uh, shares his own confession about his own workout. I wanted, I wanted you to see his words. I didn't work out today. That makes she's three decades. <laughs> 
Occasionally I will work out. And I'm one of those people, whenever I do work out, I immediately have grand plans. You know, I'm going to work out every day. And then the next day I'm like, well, not every day. <laughs> I got to let my muscles breathe a little. I'll work out every other day. And then the next day I'm like, eh, I'm happy with the way I look. I don't want to get caught up in that beauty culture. It's hard. It's hard to get motivated. It's hard to get to the gym. I actually live across the street from my health club. It's across the street. It's open 24 hours a day. Still can't get there. I knew I wasn't going to go. Even when I joined during that initial tour, they're like, here's where you can do sit-ups. Never going to happen. We have free weights. Too hard. We offer hot yoga. I'd watch. As many times as I wish that someone had been lifting that dead weight, I think Paul would say, you got to run. And when you run and kick it in, trust that the Father will be there to cheer you on. But you got to run one foot in front of another. Watch this. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. In other words, it's going to fade away. It's going to break. It's going to rust, whatever. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Watch. Verse 27. I beat my body. And I make it my slave. So that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. God would say, don't wait for others. For you to start running, to make that decision, to eliminate, to be motivated, to be starved. You got to wake up. You got to put one foot in front of the next. And like the motion detector part of God, he'll kick right in there with you. But you can't rely on someone else to carry you. At the end of Paul's life, when he's writing this letter to Timothy, he said, all have deserted me. Every single person has deserted me. He understood what it meant to stand alone. I can't help but to think in this mode of thinking about Derek Redmond. Perhaps many of you know him. Some of you know him. He was a British runner, track runner. He ran in the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. He'd had some problems before physically. His Achilles heel had snapped. And so he had gone through years of training and mending and healing and whatnot. And so when he went to run this race in Barcelona in 1992, all eyes were on him. He was the favored runner. But something happened. Right in the middle of that race, I want you to watch. Derek Redmond, the best form he's shown since he broke the British record. He was in great shape, you know. He, he was had a chance, possibility of maybe getting a medal there. Kevin Hernandez has got uh, Redmond to aim at, and so too in line number three is Steve Lewis. But Redmond's got off very fast indeed, and so too is Ismail of Qatar. Down the back straight, he's the fractional leader. Father of Nigeria has gone very quickly, and Redmond has broken down. He's on the track, kneeling down, and Derek Redmond, on his injury problem, the jinx has struck again. Running down the back straight, I heard a funny clap or a pop. And I honestly, for a split second, thought I'd been shot. Uh, and then obviously I realised I've, I've pulled a hamstring. And then when the pain sort of died down, I remembered where I was and what I was doing. And I remember thinking, quick, you're in the Olympic semi-finals, you're prat, get up and start running. And I got to the 200 metre mark after hobbling 50 metres and looked across and all the guys had finished. And it pretty much hit me that, you know, it ain't gonna happen, it's all over. I would have laid there. You know, to be honest, no way I would have got up because hamstring, when you've got a hamstring, you know you've got a hamstring. 
he just wants to finish. His dad's trying to run under the track to stop him. He's going to tell him, Derek, don't. The old man went to put his arms around me and I was just about to try and push him off because I thought it was someone else. I didn't see if he sort of jogged from behind. And uh, he said, look, you don't need to do this, you can stop now. You haven't got nothing to prove. And I said, oh, I have, you know, get me back into lane five, I want to finish. Now in the greatest arena in sport, he's getting the cheer of the games. I would never have wanted to be in Derek's shoe at that time. You know, it was a sad moment. It was a, you know, a great moment, you know, in the sport, to be honest. It's a figure, a picture that just stays in your mind forever because you don't want to see any athlete having to go through that. You just knew how destroyed he was and just how much that race meant to him. In that moment where he says, I remembered where I was. I was in the Olympics. Oh, that the church of God would remember where we are. We're in a capsule that will end. This is our time to run the race. It is not a time to be influenced by the masses. It is not a time to make up our own track. It is a time to accomplish what Christ has put us here to accomplish. I've been praying deeply all morning, oh God, that you would awaken the church, that we would remember where we are and why we're running. And how hard we should run. Oh, God, wake us up. And at the end, this lady says of him, I could tell how much the race meant. Can people fill your thrust constantly to the end and say, wow, that race means a lot to that runner. Oh, if the shoes of Paul could talk, he would say, oh, run, run, run. Time is short. And there's a judge, his name is Christ, who loves you, who's cheering you on. That was his father who came out in the track. And when others say, oh, it's too hard, I'll carry you off. The father would say, no, let's keep in lane five. When others say, just run a little slower. Why are you running slow? Why don't you just run slow with us? Pick someone in front of you. Follow them and thrust. Run with all you got. You are on a track. Run the race well. And at the end of your life, someone might say, gosh... If their shoes could talk, I could learn something. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you, God, for those who have run the race before us. God, not in just the history books or in the record of scriptures. But those who have run even and are running in our lifetime, thank you for them. We are so easily and subtly caught in the power of the flow of the masses, God. We sometimes don't even recognize it. Father, with this culture around us, as you well know, not dissimilar to that of Noah. We make up our own track. What we want to do. As runners of Jesus. I pray Father. That we'll know the course. That we'll not waste precious running time. Making up our own track. 
God, I pray today, as you have heard me pray without stopping, that you would wake up, God, the church, our church, to help us remember where we are, to help us remember this track has a finish line, to help us remember, God, that there is a set amount of time so that, God, we would thrust forward so that we will, as we stand on that bema seat of Christ, our shoes, if they could talk, would tell a story. I pray, Father, as we are running, that not only will we pick out models to follow, but will also be models that others can follow. Forbid it, God, in our life. Forbid it, God, in our life that we have no story. There is too much at risk, God. Father, thank you for those times when we feel that it's too hard and we want to give up. That the motion detection of your heart rises up and runs onto the field and whispers in our inner ear, don't quit. So I pray, God, for those in this room that are thinking of quitting, have quit, sitting on the sideline, don't feel worthy of running, all those things that creep into our psyche. I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would whisper to their inner self, keep running, keep running, keep running, and don't quit. I pray this, God. In the very capable name of Jesus Christ, amen, amen, amen.